Raise the Bar, led by the National Security Agency and National Cross-Domain Strategy Management Office, is raising the security architecture bar for cross-domain solutions, and a formal solution specification is anticipated in the coming months. Join Forcepoint and cross-domain experts on March 19th in Arlington, Virginia, for insights into the objectives and guidelines of Raise the Bar, best practices for evaluating and implementing cross-domain solutions, and tips on how to ensure your agency is Raise the Bar compliant. Please note this event is only open to government attendees, and for more information, visit the events page listed in CyberScoop's daily email newsletter. Welcome to Securiosity for March 15th. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, coming to you from the South by Southwest Conference. We're hopping from one conference to the next, and with RSA in the rearview mirror, it was a light week for news, but there were interesting stories nonetheless. We'll cover it all. In our interview, we'll talk to Drew Cohen, CEO of Masterpiece. Drew's company has a unique way of spinning startups out of people who also work as government contractors. We're also going to get to our thoughts on a wild new movie trailer that dropped this week, but first, a recap of everything that went down. A team of cybersecurity researchers has revealed technical flaws in the Swiss government's electronic voting system that could enable outsiders to replace legitimate votes with fraudulent ones. The issue is related to the way Switzerland's voting system receives and counts votes. Anyone familiar with the sequence of shuffle proofs, the cryptographic protocol the system relies on to verify votes, could manipulate ballots that would pass the system's authentication test. The issue has been resolved, but researchers say this flaw personifies the kind of worst-case scenario election security experts have warned about as many governments move towards paperless voting. Greg, that's kind of seemed bound to happen, right? Yeah, um, Switzerland put their code up on the internet a couple weeks ago. I think we talked about it then, um, how they were sort of open-sourcing their move to fully electronic voting system. And sure enough, some security researchers took that code and found some really bad flaws in it. And this is why election security advocates scream to the high heavens that you need paper ballots. There needs to be a way to verify the vote that doesn't rely on the internet. And I 100% totally agree with them. Um, It's really interesting this week too, that it was announced that uh, DARPA, has a $10 million project into a a kind of hybrid between electronic and paper voting, where you're going to see votes that are electronically cast, but that system is going to spit out a verifiable paper ballot as well. Really interesting story from Kim Zetter. But yeah, this, this Switzerland incident, it's exhibit A on why you just can't trust putting your voting system up on the internet and hoping everything is going to be okay. That's interesting. So the other system spits out a paper ballot. So you're able to see in the end if anybody hacked in and voted the wrong way. Yeah. So what The way that it works, the DARPA project works where you're going to be able to use your fingerprint in order to vote. Like there's going to be a touchscreen the same way that, you know, in some precincts across America, you can vote with a touch on a screen. Um, but that's going to spit out a paper ballot for the voter in order to verify that, yes, okay, this was the vote that I registered. And then it's also going to spit out either a, a way to put that into an optical scan reader, which is the, the way that it, it's counted when you sit down and actually fill it out with a pencil, or there's going to be another way that you can verify it on the back end as well. So there are going to be layers to this project that give people a way to audit and give people a way to verify what votes are happening without it totally depending on an electronic system, which is the way it should be if we want to have secure elections. Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. And um, were there any elections um, that happened in um, Switzerland that using that system already? I think that they were moving to make this like nationwide, but I don't think that this has been used on any elections yet. So got it. I, I I mean, this was really just show. It was an example of why countries, localities, states can't rely on electronic voting just part and parcel. Like you need you need to have that paper ballot. You need to have a way to audit. You can't just depend on the technology to do everything and hope that it's foolproof because it's not. It's just it's not. 
So great example of why we need to have paper ballots. So Facebook has accused two Ukrainian men of using quiz apps on the social media platform to infect users with malicious malware, according to a lawsuit filed by the company. By installing software extensions that masqueraded as Facebook quizzes, users unwittingly allowed two men to inject advertisements into their news feeds and access their lists of friends. That information then was exfiltrated to servers outside the country. The two men are Kiev-based entrepreneurs affiliated with a company called the Web Sun Group. So the company's website appears to be down as of now, but the defendants compromised approximately 63,000 browsers used by Facebook users and caused over $75,000 in damages to Facebook. Jen, interesting question here. Do you think it's a good look for Facebook that they put this suit out there or a bad look in just that it's, uh uh-oh, we messed up again? So I think it's a bad look. One, I'm not surprised that these quizzes people take and then share on Facebook have some sort of malicious intent. Um, I've always kind of thought that, although I'm guilty of taking some of the quizzes um, because they're fun. But, you know, Facebook should have been doing more um, to make sure that stuff getting posted wasn't malicious. I think this is them getting out in front of it because this smells like Cambridge Analytica. I mean, the Cambridge Analytica thing was based off of a personality quiz that was built on the platform. So I think this is Facebook getting out in front of it. And yeah, I would have to agree more that this is more of a bad look, even though it's Facebook being proactive and chasing down these people. But at the same time, like I just, my head hurts when I think about all of the platform abuses that go on here and Facebook running to catch up to put out these fires everywhere. Like, do better. Just uh, the, the, the weekly instance of Facebook not doing better. So, great. Yeah, maybe there'll be some change coming soon. So Google in the coming months will embark on a marketing campaign to raise awareness about a service the company says will better protect people accessing new websites. They just need users to trust them first. Adoption for Google sign-in is still relatively low, said Mark Risher, head of account security, partly because Google has done a poor job explaining what sign-in is all about. But there's also a creeping mistrust users have in technology companies in general after revelations about mega data breaches and apparent privacy violations. So how do you think Google overcomes this? Uh I think that it's really interesting and I'm not sure how because this is sort of a market recognition thing and it's up to Google to figure it out. And I think when I say that, I think it goes beyond marketing because it harkens back to a conversation I had when I was out at RSA um, where a user of, you know, these big platforms, Google, Facebook, all the ones that everybody uses, kind of conflated the security aspects of all of those platforms into one. And it was one of those things where she's like, I don't trust any of these big platforms anymore because, I mean, I mean, I don't even know if, how they all work together, who owns what anymore. It's really hard to keep track of. So, uh, and Richard talked about this too, where he said that, People come up to him all the time and they're like, oh, well, doesn't Facebook just work with Google on security? And obviously they don't. And it's really a mess to try to differentiate and and untangle the web of how all of this works together. So Google has a really big problem of just figuring out how to really get that security message across and how they need users to understand that like, they really don't have any control over how Facebook does their security. But also, I mean, Google's this, – this sign-in service is just one aspect of Google security. Like Google also sells security keys. So it's like they're also competing against themselves. You could have this Google sign-in, or which is, you know – a a totally software browser-based service, or you could have their hardware key, which is something totally different. And maybe they should all work together to make everything streamlined. Like there's just a lot of moving parts here that I think makes it tough to overcome. And part of that, I feel like Google is their own worst enemy. Sure. Um, but I also don't think they do a good job of advertising it. I don't, I don't know that I've seen anything about, um, any of these products, if just being like a normal consumer, um, you know, using Google as my search browser, like, I don't, I'm not sure that I know about this stuff other than in that I, I like to read about this stuff. Yeah. It would almost like, 
it would almost be advantageous to, and I, I know this is probably like sacrilegious inside Google, but maybe every once in a while yeah. running advertisements for this on the front page of Google or running advertisements, not even advertisements. They can just be, hey, we have the security key. Have you ever heard about security keys? Would you like to read more about security keys? Click on this link and and let's show you what it is to be secure. I mean, you, you know, Google can talk about a marketing campaign. There's your marketing campaign. Your, your Google.com is, how many times is that the homepage for people when they're using the internet? Throw up uh, a link. Yeah, it may not be who they are, but I just kind of think security to me is a little bit of that greater good. And while usually you're like, well, I don't really want to see ads from a company on something like that, I kind of feel like we need to see an ad for it with like a, this is what it means. And, you know, this is what happens when you're not using something like this. And even if they want to make it not all about Google, you could say, here's other people who also provide this service. But it just seems like people aren't secure and they don't know how to be secure. So it it would be helpful if Google taught us how to do it. It would honestly be interesting to see it in the form of a television commercial because it reminds me right now, the only thing that ever comes close to this is I see commercials for commercial VPNs and the commercial VPN companies that have TV commercials, those commercials are laughably bad. They are a lot, they prey on people's fears. They actually use the term military grade encryption. Like that's just awful. Like we don't need to be talking to people about that because they don't understand it anyway. So I think that if there were actual security commercials from Google done in the way that Google does a lot of their other commercials, whether it's search, whether it's advertisements for their smart speakers, advertisements for Android, you know, what have you, I think that would go a long way. So if that's the, I think that is the marketing campaign that would be smart for Google. I don't think we're ever going to see it though. No, probably not. Okay. So moving forward. Dozens of companies left their sensitive corporate data exposed through web links to their files on Box, researchers from Adversus said Monday. Passport photos, bank accounts, social security numbers, and tech prototypes were among the data leaked. High-profile companies appear to be accidentally sharing internal documents to the web via the publicly available links that Box generates for them, and those files are vulnerable to brute force attacks that researchers found. Jen, product use check. Do you use Box at all? I do use Box. I use Box for work and I use Box for personal. Yeah, uh, this we also, we use Box as well. And uh, that might seem everybody's rolling their eyes or going, okay, great OPSEC flaw, Greg, telling people that you use these. We, we checked it out. Our situation is fine. We're smart enough not to float stuff out there. But yeah, that's really bad when, they, you know, they talked about brute force attacks and what that is in that, that's a little bit of a misnomer just in that all, all you have to do to brute force attack this is just know the URL and kind of poke around and, and see what files come up if anything comes up unlocked. So it's so it, – it, the, the ease of attack is really, really um, easy, but company.box.com slash you know, HR or – media or something like that. I mean, oh, you, you should be able get to into like the that. main box. Got it. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think you can do that on the personal side. Um, but I think that on, yeah, on the company side and on enterprise accounts, you could just put in URLs. And if you did not password protect them or add on the protections that box allows, um, they were just free and open to the internet, which <laughs> I mean, they, they said it right there. Bank accounts, social security numbers, tech prototypes. I mean, imagine losing R&D because you just didn't click a box on the back end of your box account. Like, that's infuriating. <laughs> awesome. So um, the FBI is investigating a breach of popular corporate VPN service, Citrix, by international cyber criminals. The company announced on Friday. Access to Citrix, which provides login access for numerous corporations throughout the U.S., could offer hackers a valuable foothold into organizations. There's no sign that the breach has compromised any Citrix product or service, the Florida company said. So, Greg, there's been a lot of noise about this breach this week. Can you explain what's really going on? Yeah. So what's really interesting about this is this happened on Friday as everybody was leaving RSA, 
And then no less than 24 hours later, a company out of Los Angeles, I believe, called ReSecurity came out and was like, this is Iran. Like, point blank, this is Iran. We have the evidence that this is Iran. And there were stories. I believe there was a big story on NBC News about how this was Iran. And if you look at the evidence from ReSecurity, there's just nothing there. There's just absolutely nothing there that would point to any sort of Iranian attribution. So the noise has kind of shifted off the fact that Citrix had their internal stuff accessed and more toward the fact that this company is just being wild reckless with their attributions. Like attributions are extremely, extremely hard to have something like this turned around and pinned on some nation state, basically 24 hours after it had been made public and 72 hours after the FBI had contacted the company is just, again, just just reckless is the word that's like just blinking in my head. It's nuts that it's even gotten to this point. The only company that's even said anything, and there has just been a ton of skepticism placed on this report that Iran was behind it. So, so this is going to turn out to be fake news, if you will? I don't know that it's necessarily fake news. I mean, the, it, there is a real story here. The FBI came to Citrix and said, yo, there's something up with your system. And that's a story in its own right. And it's a pretty big story because a lot of companies use Citrix for their internal and corporate VPNs. So um, if it doesn't matter whether it's a nation state, a criminal or, you know, what have you, if there's somebody watching in over those corporate VPNs, that's a huge problem for companies. And that's a huge problem for Citrix in the reliability and security of their product. But as far as attribution is concerned, ignore the attribution and just concentrate on the fact that if you have Citrix, I, I would be making phone calls to Citrix to your reps and trying to figure out, you know, what the next steps are. Like remediation and patching is definitely something that you should figure out here. But um, so, yeah, that's the long answer. This isn't fake news. What's fake news is possibly the fact that this is attributed to Iran. So Microsoft has released security updates for two vulnerabilities that researchers say have been exploited by suspected nation-state hacking groups dubbed Fruity Armor and Sandcat. Attackers already have leveraged at least two of the bugs, according to research from Google and Kaspersky Lab. Fruity Armor has previously targeted victims all over the place, Thailand, Iran, Algeria, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and Sweden. And Sandcat is a new threat group that researchers say is most active in the Middle East. So Jen... Better name for the group, Fruity Armor or Sandcat? I like Sandcat better. I'm trying to figure out what Fruity Armor represents here. I, I mean, I the obvious thing would be that maybe some tropical fruit happening in these countries, but I don't think so. I, I would go Fruity Armor here. Fruity Armor, we were laughing about it in the newsroom. Fruity Armor, to me, I see this picture in my head of some hacker in a hoodie wearing chain mail, but the chain mail looks like Fruity Pebbles. So I, I just, this group is hilarious to me. So now that's what I'm going to picture whenever I write about this group. I was thinking Fruit Loops, but yeah, Fruity Pebbles, he's probably wearing like a Fred <laughs> Flintstone hoodie. Totally. <laughs> a United Nations panel has cooperated the North Korean government's long documented use of hacking tools to evade sanctions in releasing a report that linked 571 million in cryptocurrency losses to the Hermit Kingdom. Hugh Griffith, who heads the panel of independent experts, told Cybersgroup that North Korea's demonstrated ability to breach banking security is extremely worrying and raises broader questions. With its lengthy report on North Korean sanctions flouting, the UN panel is taking note of hacking like never before. So Greg, what happens next? I think that the more and more we see these reports, the more and more you're going to see this sort of shut off from North Korea, because this is not the first report that has talked about how North Korea depends on hacking cryptocurrency exchanges in order to get money. I mean, this is what they do. They hack the real, true um, conventional banking system, and they also go after cryptocurrency as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if you start to see within the next year, if the the Western world or other countries just try to cut them off altogether from this system. Because look, we know that 
we've heard enough stories about uh, Bitcoin and blockchain and how that even though these cryptocurrencies say they're anonymous, they're not really anonymous. So, you, I mean, they can be tracked. It, it can be watched. So you're going to start to see that evidence pile up and then we're, you're going to turn around and see just North Korea cut off from this completely. So these reports do uh, are good in that it's just more evidence and more support to the fact that North Korea does this to evade sanctions and more needs to happen to make sure that they don't get their hands on this money. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like we hear about more and more um, money being stolen that way. It just, it's, it's interesting. Um, but I don't see how we stop it at all. I mean, they're not going to stop. So I think that it's going to be upon somebody like us or somebody, you know, in the UN that has some capabilities to try to cut them off from this. So yeah, I, I agree with you in that it's not going to stop, but it's not going to stop on their end. Like they're not going to be contrite and turn around and go, oh, wait, that, yeah, we're, we're wrong. Okay, we're going to stop. That, I mean, that's not going to happen. So there's going to have to be some other way, some sort of coalition that turns around and does something, whether it's an offensive measure or some other way besides sanctions that, you know, forces them away from actually being able to do this. So lawmakers are in the dark about how many times their computers and smartphones have been compromised, and that has to change, according to Senators Tom Cotton and Ron Wyden. The lawmakers have asked the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms to produce an annual tally of the number of Senate devices that have been breached and for the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms to notify Senate leadership within five days of a detected breach. We believe the lack of data regarding successful cyber attacks against the Congress has contributed to the absence of debate regarding congressional cybersecurity. Both Cotton and Wyden wrote in a letter to the Senate Sergeant at Arms. Jen, did you think that the Senate already got this information? I did. I mean, I'm shocked that they weren't getting the information about how many of their devices have been breached. I can get that. Um, you know, maybe it's not Senate wide that in five days after a breach, but I would assume that the Senate office that's been breached would get a notification right away. Um, and as it's investigated and some evidence of something has been found, then it would go um, to Senate leadership. So, but this is surprising that, you know, they had to ask for this, that it's not already a thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really like at a loss for words that there hasn't been information passed to the Senate when it, it, it comes to this. I, I think this just points to a real lack of know-how and lack of understanding on how all of this really works. Like we've seen this time and time again in, in the hearings where we have senators say things about technology and everybody goes, what are they even talking about? I, I think this is sort of related to that in that why why would you not want that data? Why would you not want to know when uh, a device has been compromised or data has been leaked? Like that, it, this is just, it's not even a, a political thing. Like it's just a business thing. There, there's still the, the, the business of government and the business of legislating. Why would you not want this data? Like good on Cotton and Wyden for putting this letter out there. I, I'm just as stunned as you. When this story came across, I would have thought that they already got this data. They're yeah, really surprising. Really surprising. It's often the little things that help cyber criminals separate the wares from the pack. Sometimes it's a new feature in the malware itself, and sometimes it's how well you market a familiar strategy. An unrelated reports Wednesday threatened to provider Flashpoint detailed DMS sniff, which takes a new approach to remaining stealthy as it steals point-of-sale information from consumers. And Cisco unveiled Glitch POS, which steals credit card information in a familiar way, but comes with an instructional video from its creators. DM sniff is the real innovation. It has been active in use since 2016, thanks in part to a domain generation algorithm which allows hackers to continue siphoning data from a web page even after police have taken hackers' domain pages offline. Greg, what else do you know about this? So this DMS sniff is really, really interesting for the reasons that you just said, but also because researchers said that use of such an algorithm is rarely seen in the point-of-sale malware world. 
because the point of sale malware world, it's a lot of it, it's almost like a next level of spam in that thieves typically distribute POS malware to as many sites as possible and just kind of hope that somebody isn't guarded and then they have an in. With this, I mean, they're starting to get more advanced. Um, you know, you're starting to see things that um, are persistent. And persistence is, I don't want to say it's the holy grail, but it's close. I mean, think about that. You can have a, a team come in or you can spend millions of dollars trying to remediate your site when it comes to point of sale malware. And now it's to the point where hackers can continue taking data after police, pen testers, incident response come in and take these websites offline. I mean, that's, that's nuts. I mean, that, I mean, that's really impressive. I mean, a generation of scammers have relied on POS malware to get consumer information and credit card information. But again, it's all been this sort of spray and pray ideal. Now if they actually have the technical capabilities to lock in and never go away, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's really damaging. And that's really something that uh, CISO should watch out for in the future. So yesterday I was walking down the streets in Austin, Texas, and I noticed um, a, a protest, 20 people holding signs with um, pictures of Mark Zuckerberg with an X drawn through him sort of talking about privacy and you know at first glance you're you're thinking there's there's a protest by millennials about you know don't use facebook and then when you glance at it again you realize it's a cybersecurity company that i won't mention um that is um basically just advertising um their services which i thought was really interesting because i you know i take it back to to rsa um with the soar company that did something similar What's going? Is this the new advertising campaign for cybersecurity companies now to just do fake protests? Oh, so the fake protest thing. Interesting. Um, no, that was. I, I don't think so. And I think that that was bad marketing. That was just bad marketing overall. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the protest that you saw at um, South by Southwest was done by the same company that did them at RSA and kind of pains me to even talk about it because it's just so, so bad. Like the AstroTurf marketing is something that seems to be pulled from like the grimy beltway political realm. Like you've heard about fake protests related to political causes all the time. So now we're going to do them as marketing for cybersecurity companies. Like what part of that sounds like a good idea? Like, no, it's a terrible idea. And, And I will note, this was not the same company. Um, that did the, the protest at RSA. Okay. Um, it was a different company, but I was just just kind of floored by like, what a waste of time. Imagine the amount, yeah, the, the waste of time really sticks out to me in that, like, just go put that money back in your product or go get that money and put it in towards a, a little bit of technical training for your sales reps. So they know what they're talking about on a basic level when it comes to selling their product. Like it's just, it's, I, I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm struggling to like not go off on a rant here to just say how bad this is. It's just bad. Like <laughs> I don't even need to go on a rant because it, it, it all just comes back to the oh, fact no. that it's, it's just bad, just bad. Don't do it. Do something else with your money that's more productive. Don't stage a fake protest as a marketing stunt. Do a, do anything else. Donate the money to charity. Um, hire some interns. I don't know. Something else completely. <laughs> okay, now to our interview with Drew Cohen. Drew is the CEO of Masterpiece. Uh, really interesting conversation and a really interesting model that he's following in leveraging talent that is working for some intelligence agencies and working for the public sector, but then are also doing private sector and startup stuff on the side. Really interesting interview. Check it out. Okay, now we are speaking with Drew Cohen, the president and CEO of Masterpiece. Drew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you're organization is really unique. Uh, you know, talk to me a little bit about 
what exactly it is that you do because I, I get the sense that you're an accelerator, an incubator, all wrapped into one, but because of where you're situated in Maryland, it's a little bit unique in what you do. So I'll, I'll, I'll back away and let you take it away. Sure. So what we recognized a few years ago was that Maryland is got this great talent pool of technologists, uh, software developers, and particularly cyber engineers. And the vast majority, 95% plus, are working on uh, government contracts. Uh, I'm in Columbia, Maryland, so they're mostly working at one three-letter agency. And those contracts generally hire people. So there's a bunch of companies in that area that sell contracting hours to the government. And they say that they're technology companies, but really what they are staffing companies. Right? They're providing engineering sure. staff to the government. And a lot of, especially the best and brightest engineers, want to build things, right? They don't want to sell hours. They want to build products. Mm -hmm. And so we built Masterpiece Solutions and to basically create that kind of uh, technical base to support those types of contracts in a government services uh, company. And then to add to that Masterpiece Launchpad, which is an accelerator, we use the Lean Launchpad model in fact, we teach Steve Blank's um, Startup Owner's Manual uh, class that he teaches at Stanford to those engineers. We pair them up. We help them start businesses from day one, right? So get the ideas, get customers, pivot, you know, do the kinds of things that startups do, and build companies. We're typically the first investors in those companies. We typically help those companies secure their first customers. And frankly, we try to get them to a run rate of about a million dollars annual revenue before we look for investment. So is this affiliated at all with that three-letter agency? No. Okay. So, the, the, so, so what I would say is Mastery Solutions is a contractor on contracts with that three-letter agency. And our staff generally work on those contracts. But the startups are new ideas that were developed at Masterpiece to be commercial, but they leverage some of the same technologies. So for instance, we have a startup called Yikes, which is building a consumer router that does software-defined networking and network segmentation automatically for a home network, right? So if you think about a home network, right, you put your router in your network, you have a Wi-Fi, you have, you know, so you used to, you know, 10 years ago, you know, or maybe 15, you had a couple of computers, a printer, you know, maybe you were getting your first cell phone, the smartphone, and connecting it to your network. But it was pretty static. It was pretty flat. And if you thought about security for your own network, you know, it was endpoint protection, right? right. You ran McAfee on that. Sure. Right? Now, you probably got 50 or 60 devices. And if you're like me with kids, you know, their friends come over. The first thing they ask is the Wi-Fi password, <laughs> right? If they're playing games, they want to put their game console on the network, right? Right. And so now you have 60, 70 devices plus, you know, 20 or 30 transient devices. And you wonder, how are these devices communicating? What happens if someone brings an infected device into my network? One of the things we found, by the way, is that 70% of the cyber attacks target home networks and small businesses. Right, really small yeah. businesses. And it's okay. the same problem, right? Really small businesses have their own router, right? Maybe they use a managed service provider to get big enough, but, you know, I went and got a haircut earlier today. I went to the barbershop. I'm sure they have a network, and I'm sure they don't have an MSSP. Right. Right? And so the question is, can you provide enterprise? And if you go look at RSA and all the companies on the floor, they're all building for the enterprise. So the question is, how do you secure those Capabilities and so we've so Yikes is a company that basically put enterprise type capabilities into a consumer or small business grade off the shelf router. So I want to hear about the rest of your companies, but I really do want to jump back to um, Masterpiece Launchpad sure. um, really quick. That's like you know my passion is of course startups, um, and as I look at cybersecurity companies, certainly some of our, our better ones that we see. Um, tend to come out of um, people who are former um, employees of the NSA. So sort of tell me about how you um, identify companies or would-be companies. And if I'm a, um, an engineer sitting at the NSA right now and I've got an idea, like how do I move it from I'm working over here and have an idea to building a company? So great question. So I would say there's a couple of prerequisites 
that our engineers have, and they're probably different than you think. So one is, I don't vet the ideas. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know where the next win is. And when you start a company, to me, that first idea and where you start is not the key point. So what we do is we tell our engineers, you can start any project you want to think about turning into a company, but there's only two requirements we have. One is that first work you're doing on your own, right? I tell them you can watch Shark Tank, you can kind of see any investment model you think, the first investment in that is yours, right? So they work for us at Masterpiece on contract, and the first thing they're doing is putting in their own time to build this thing up. The second requirement is they have to get at least one other Masterpiece person. So when you say they're, sorry to interrupt you, but when you say they're working for Masterpiece, you ha- you've employed them yeah. to work on a government contract doing something else, but you're giving them some amount of time to also spend working on so what we're not, they want to do. So we're not giving them that, that time. Okay. We're encouraging them to work spend on their own. Spend weekends yes. doing... Okay. And we have some milestones that they hit, then we start funding. Right? So there's okay. some clear milestones that say, if you get to here, you get this. Right? So I let them know investment is a trailing function. Right? You have to get other people involved. Uh-huh. And the first invest, so that, so, so, but it's an interesting question that people ask me, you know, are you giving me hours? Right. Right? It's like, no. You're going to come up with those hours. Now, the other thing we do is take that idea and run it through the Lean Launchpad class, which the first thing it does, it says, get out of your office and go talk to people. Uh-huh. Right? So, which is not the tip. So, one thing I will say about the engineers we have, they're really smart technical guys. They tend to be highly introverted, right? There's a joke, you know, how do you tell an extrovert uh, up at the agency? And it's, he's looking at your shoes, right? <laughs> um, so. That's terrible. Yeah, but that's kind of the population, <laughs> but they're brilliant, right? And so the question is, how do we, so we take them out of our comfort zone. We say, if you think this idea is good, let's go talk to people. Let's go rapidly prototype things. Let's mock it up. Let's see if we get interest, right? Mm-hmm. And we really do follow, you know, the business model canvas and the lean launchpad methodology. We bring people. We so we bring a big network in. We also leverage so Masterpiece itself is a seventeen million dollar a year company. That means we have, you know, real estate that we rent. Mm-hmm. We have uh, insurance companies that insure us. We have benefits providers. We have lawyers. And basically, one thing I tell all our service providers is, if you're not trying stuff from our companies, there might be a different service provider, right? Got it. So there's a bunch of So you've potential. got like pilot customers built in. We do, right? And we also have a model to get the, the capital structure right, and a model to get the IP right, and a model to make an investment-friendly company. Got so it. So that when they get to that stage, they're ready, right? And so as they get more market traction, we put more money behind the idea. And so, the idea tends to change. So yeah. I can tell you that none of the companies we have, the idea that they started was not the idea that they turned into the company. Some right. of the core pieces were the same, but that wasn't the company. So how much money do you typically put into a company? Um, what does it end up looking like when you're done? And then how much of it do you own? So. Those are great questions. Um, we typically put, so it depends on how you count the dollars. We probably put in about a quarter of a million in cash. Mm-hmm. We probably put in about a quarter of a million in kind. You know, and so for instance, I'm the acting CEO of one of our companies. We know we can't spin it out till we get another company and we're doing an executive search for that now. Um, and so, so, but my time never got charged that company. But our model is that we end up with a controlling interest in the company. Okay, so you end up with like the fifty-one percent or whatever. But how does it scale, right? You can't be acting CEO of more than one company, or maybe two at a time, right. depending on exactly so where that company is in its life cycle. One thing we're actively doing is we build a network of. Um, what we call executive affiliates, and we have a large number. So it's kind of executive affiliates and advisors that come and work with these companies early. And we're really looking at serial entrepreneurs. So think about it. We're trying to package a company that has good technology, Uh has initial market traction, and is very early stage, and we help bring other executives to that company early on with the support of 
another entity behind it. Right. Right. So you have getting, the ability to essentially give someone as much consulting work as they need to supplement until their company gets big enough to sustain. Yeah, and we and we can slowly move them so they can start with forty hours of consulting a week, drop that to thirty. Really, it's just scale back down as you go. Right. Okay. And how long? And you said that you've been doing this how long? So Masterpiece Solutions has been in business since 2009. Mm-hmm. I joined in partnership with my partner, Steve Horn, in 2014, and we basically reinvented the company in 2015 to do this. Got it. And so how many companies have kind of gone through this cycle? So the furthest one along is the company Zool IoT. We are preparing to get that one to an A round this summer. Uh, it's doing... Roughly 300000 in revenue so far this quarter. Mm-hmm. We want to have a couple of quarters over two hundred fifty k so that we have an annual, you know, a right. proven annual run rate of over a million dollars. And that's our trigger for trying to fund it. Okay. Um, and we've got two others that are just starting to generate their first revenue. We've got two behind that that are still pre-revenue. Interesting. So talk to me a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because you talked about it being a government services business, and in the flurry there, I might have missed this. In the time that these people that you bring in are working on their ideas, they're also working on government contracts? Yes. How does the government react to that? Because I would imagine that, look, government contracting is so normal, it's just the everyday thing, but what happens when they lose that talent? I mean, they want that talent in there working on those projects, but I have to imagine that this three-letter agency is turning around and going, oh, I really like that talent. I wish they could have worked here a lot longer. Sure. So the one thing I would say, the good news is we're talking about a lot of smart people, both at Masterpiece and in the government. And the government is aware that there's a, a, a talent issue, right? Right. And so, in some ways, Masterpiece is a, is a benefit because the folks that we have at Masterpiece actually stay longer than they would have if they just left, right? So it's not as pull the Band-Aid off. The other thing is that while they're there, they're bringing some of these innovation concepts, so they're really getting exposed to lean launchpad and true innovation. So okay. it's interesting because if you look at the government contracts, almost all of them ask for some type of innovation. But if you think about the providers on those government contracts and how much innovation they really bring to the table, it's fairly marginal, right? Because their businesses don't require them to innovate, right? What we're doing is really bringing innovation, right? Because when, on the startup side, these guys really have to innovate, right? Right. And so as they kind of get steeped in that and as they get more exposure to more commercial capabilities, um, then they go back in. And while they're still there, they're bringing that. The other thing, we didn't really talk about that, is as these companies are starting up, we have a capability for other Masterpiece employees to help earn equity. So every Masterpiece employee earns equity in every startup. And oh, so wow, there's okay. there's an incentive for the folks who aren't going to the startup to still help them, right? So okay. that's another piece of the puzzle is not all of our engineers. So right now it's about... 55% of our active engineering base, so we have about 70 engineers, and something, 38 of them, 39 of them, are doing a startup. Okay. But the other 30-something are not, right? And but do so, those other 30-something sort of go through the lean startup? They can the if they want, so okay. it's voluntary. And, and actually, even in a 39, probably 25 are leaving, right? And 14, 15 aren't going to leave. Got it. Right? Okay. But they're willing to help. Right? They're willing to put that time in. They get us, and, and our equity model is kind of split, so there's, it's broken into, there's an equity tranche for Masterpiece employees. Mm-hmm. That's out of our percentage. Sure. There's an equity tranche that we call the inventor share, which is kind of getting it up to the point of a company forming. Yeah. From a kind of an idea, an internal product to a company form. And then there's the founder share, which is the largest percent. And that you have to leave Masterpiece to get. So as I put on, um, sort of back on like the investor hat, as I think about this and I think about raising a Series A, um, and I think about like who's running the company because at a Series A, right, you'll, you're no longer going to be CEO, right. acting CEO, someone else is going to sort of take that. Um, and if your company owns fifty one percent, how does that work in terms of in terms of incentivizing um, the the new CEO and the original founders to like still want to build this company? 
as they end up selling another 33% of the company over time to their investors. So, you know, there's the D word, right? There's dilution. Yeah. Right? So that's what Well, but the founder's going to get diluted too as you raise... So we... So the, the, the intent is to... So our, our original model has built in a 20% for the first and for the A round, uh-huh. right? So it's roughly then 25% for the founding team, 4% for other management employees, and 51%. So that's kind of our split. Got it. Okay. And so, yeah, we have to... So the goal is to... And then on the mastery side, we might put in the other executives as well. So we want it to be... You know, we're highly incented to make these work. Sure. So we have to make Absolutely that Absolutely you are, work, yeah. Right? And the key is we have the flexibility. So I would say is you have an executive team that's had multiple startups with some successful exits yeah. working to make an investment-friendly company that needs to answer those questions. Got it. So I guess we didn't actually talk about that at the beginning. What is your background? So I started, I'm going to kind of date myself here, but I started in a small government contractor in the mid 80s. Um, in the early 90s, I actually was a CTO of an early push technology company and ended up through Intel's interest coming to um, California and working at Intel. And I was a director at Intel and in what was the content group, but also part of the early version of became what became Intel Capital. Okay. So at okay. the time I was there, it was called Corporate Business Development. Mm-hmm. Someone got the better idea that naming it Intel Capital would be better. We did a lot of internet startups, investment in internet startups at the time. In 1997, I helped start a company called Neoplanet. Okay. Um, I was a CEO, and we sold that company to Compact. And uh, so that's kind of my startup. Era. And then after yeah. 9-11, uh, for family reasons, I moved back to the East Coast. I ended up going to Booz Allen. I was a partner at Booz Allen. So I've got a lot of pedigree on the um, yeah. contracting side uh-huh. and a lot of pedigree on the startup commercial side. I lived in the Bay Area during the 90s. Uh-huh. So, you know, that kind of combination is a little bit unique, especially in, more unique in Maryland um, in terms of, or not uh, unique is probably the wrong word, but there's a limited pool of people who've both been West Coast startup and sure. kind of West Coast tech, as well as East Coast government contracting. Got it. So, Drew, on to curiosity, we end every interview with a very random question. I called RSA a cybersecurity circus uh, recently on a podcast. So, if you were actually in the circus, would you rather be the person with their head inside the lion's mouth, or would you get shot out of a cannon? I personally would probably be a clown, but that's just the kind of guy I am. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know if that's really the, the question you asked, but uh, that probably means you're getting shot out of a cannon. Probably. I feel like that's always the clown. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's what I'm I would pick too. I think I'm too. one of the fifty guys getting out of that little cab. there you go Uh, Drew really appreciate you uh, coming aboard and talking with us about this and hopefully we'll talk to you in the future thanks Drew so thanks again to Drew for joining us out at RSA again really really interesting model there but from the interesting to the weird Jen earlier this week there was a movie trailer that was dropped uh, for a movie coming out next month called Crypto. Uh, Kurt Russell's in it. One of the Hemsworth brothers is in it. I'm not exactly sure. And I'm not exactly sure it matters because, oh my God, what a disaster of a movie. You checked out the trailer after I sent it to you. Let's talk about this a little bit more. Give me your thoughts. I wasn't sure what that movie was about. Other than it was called Crypto, and then I saw on that trailer a couple of like bank balances of crypto. It just seems weird <laughs> uh, and and overdone. Maybe I I I tweeted about this, and some other publications picked up on my tweets. I cannot get over the screenshot of the guy doing an investigation where it's like folders of like crimes to commit crimes already committed kickbacks 
like, oh, <laughs> like it is, it's me, the, the very organized and very dumb criminal that leaves the paper trail. Like if you did more IR, you would go into my reminders and find, oh, eight o'clock, bribe somebody, nine o'clock, build hacking weapons, 10 o'clock, hack the blockchain. <laughs> That's not the way any of this works. It's amazing. I mean, I feel like I'm going to go see it though. No, I mean, I might see it ironically. Like I might be the dude in the theater that's just like part laughing, part, you know, just crying that this is so dumb. And like, it's, it's just astounding to me. Like we could talk about all of the issues that actually, you know, play cryptocurrency and blockchain and Bitcoin and all of that. This movie doesn't seem to tackle any of that. And not that it was supposed to be like a documentary or or anything like that. It's clearly just for entertainment purposes. But at the same time, it's like, well, wait, this is like just pure fantasy. Like nothing about this has anything reasonably to do with cryptocurrency. Like it, it just is like uh, uh, money. It's it, it, the, the, the movie might as well just be called money. It's just internet money. At this point, it doesn't look like it's actually tied up in anything that actually anybody talks about when it comes to Bitcoin. But, oh, my God, the the, the paper trail part of it just I can't get over it. It's hysterical. Oh, yeah, that kickback folder. Um, also, there looks like there's going to be some Russian violence in the movie. So there's that. I mean, it's every bad hacker trope that you could imagine. And I now that no, I'm talking absolutely. about it. I've gone from I'll never see this movie to I am going to watch every moment of this movie. Oh, you'll totally and, be there in April. And laugh, um, just laugh about it so, so much. I mean, this I can't believe that this is even being released in theaters. I mean, this looks like a bad Netflix release, and yet it is going to theaters. I mean, I, I can't imagine that this is going to stick around in theaters that long. I mean, there's going to be tubs of popcorn that last in box offices longer than this movie is going to last. So, oh, that's terrible. It might be really, really good. I, 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 will, <laughs> I will bet you uh, one-tenth of your favorite cryptocurrency that by the time this movie comes out, it does not have a 50% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, it's it's not going to do well in the box office, but you never know. It's R- Kurt Russell, so I guess I don't. Maybe they paid him in cryptocurrency. I, I guess I don't know. Maybe that's why it's called crypto. There it is. Okay, maybe he's been ransomware for that <laughs> cryptocurrency. That's, yes, that's some some producer ransomware Kurt Russell, and instead of giving him Bitcoin, said. Okay, if you want all of your stuff back, you have to do this movie for us. And he was like, okay, you got me. I guess I'm going to have to do this movie. Okay, that's it from us this week. Uh, Everybody, go check out that trailer. It'll be in the show notes. And as always, stay curious. Stay curious.